Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we have a special guest in our podcast studio, our neighbor here in the building, the Israeli ambassador Ren Yakobi. Welcome to the podcast. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for having me. We've invited you for obvious reasons because there is a lot to talk about these days with the ongoing conflict around Gaza. I want to start the conversation by just asking you personally, you have friends, you have family in Israel, obviously. What are you hearing from your loved ones in Israel? How are they? Well, luckily, personally, my mother and brothers protected. They are in bomb shelters. My mother is a bit, or more than a bit in shock since uh, the building next door was hit by a rocket. And she lives in the center of Israel, not anywhere close to the border. So are my brothers with their families. I had to release two of my Israeli employees at the embassy to attend funerals and to their families in Israel following the October 7th uh, terror attack. And, you know, uh, there's no Israeli or Jew in the world who doesn't know someone who got somehow, if not wounded, God forbidden, killed or now involved in the uh, war, the Iron Swords in the Gaza Strip. Israel is a relatively close-knit community, so when an attack like the one on 7 October happens with 1,400 victims and more wounded, any family, every family in this country would feel it somehow. Indeed. Just to put this into context, you told me before that Kristallnacht, that was 91 people killed, this was 1,400. So this is actually on a scale that we haven't seen really since those dark times. Yes, I tend to call uh, the October 7th attack uh, our 9-11. Despite it being much bigger than the 9-11 on the 9-11, in New York, more than 5,000 people were killed. But if you compare you know, the sheer proportional population numbers, the number of people murdered just on the October 7th are more than 20 times the 9-11 of the United States. What happened within the United States, the surprise and then the reaction is not much different than what Israel is doing and reacting. The first was the element of surprise. It was all planned to surprise by Hamas, which is even worse than ISIS. And we don't need to get into the graphic details of what they have done, but I think it's all over the networks. And the reaction is to allow the citizens of the region, not only in Israel, even in Gaza, to rid of those who have taken not only Israelis and foreigners now as hostages, but also the people of Gaza. Mm. There's another difference between the 9-11 attacks and what you're going through. The 9-11 attacks happened on a single day. For you, this is an ongoing crisis because you're still under heavy bombardment on a daily basis. You mentioned your family is in bomb shelters. You also, of course, still have a hostage situation to deal with. So there are more than 200 people still actually with Hamas in Gaza. So this is an ongoing situation, whereas at least 9-11 was over in a single day. For you, this is an ongoing nightmare. Well, we are counting now, now about uh, 241 hostages of various nationalities. Some of them are under the age of five who were taken without their parents because their parents were assassinated in front of them. In other cases, there were children assassinated in front of their parents. A big number of elderly people above 75 years of age, some of them Holocaust survivors. They just imagine what they're going through. Uh, of course, with no access of any humanitarian organization. And 
the more than 9,000 rockets being shot into Israeli towns and cities uh, since the October 7th. In a way, a double uh, war crime. It's shot from within civilian population into civilian population. And another aspect of the situation for Israel in daily life is the internal displacement. We are now experiencing 280,000, and it is a growing number of Israelis who are displaced from more than 100 towns and villages and kibbutzim, some because they were burnt down in the October 7th attack. Most houses visited uh, by terrorists were also burnt sometimes with the people inside them. If they couldn't open a door to a room, to a safe room, they simply burnt it down. Some targeted by rockets, and some we have evacuated because we have noticed that certain village or certain town is targeted more than usual, and therefore, until we take off uh, launchers, we have uh, placed the people in hotels. All our hotels are full in Israel. Well, Israel used to be a popular tourist destination with plenty of hotels. Not anymore. Only six airlines are keeping the flight. So I I imagine that even with all the tourists gone, you will struggle to house 280,000 people, even just temporarily. Yes, we have basically 120,000 people host on government expense in hotels. There are 87,000 who are hosted in other towns, kibbutzim, and villages by generous families, and about 73,000 people who pay out of their own pockets for, uh, you know, Airbnb, alternative housing, or simply, S- you know, with friends. staying with friends or mm. couch surfing uh, as long as they have nowhere else to go. So that is daily life, daily experience in Israel right now. Unfortunately, yes. So the media, of course, focus heavily on the plight of the people in Gaza, but that's not the only people suffering at the moment. No. Again, we, we were led to believe, wrongly, that allowing 20,000 Palestinians working daily in Israel, something we don't have to do. On the other side of Gaza, people tend to forget there's Egypt. No Palestinians go to work daily in Egypt. Because Egypt wouldn't allow that. No. We have thought that having long-term plans for the Palestinians in Gaza, energy, water, food, collaborations with the European Union and other countries will benefit with the citizens of Gaza, but also will turn the ruling Hamas, that took over, by the way, they've taken over by force, killing the Fatah elected officials, to attend to the daily needs. We were wrong. Uh, unfortunately, one can say dead wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is a mistake we will not be able to continue uh, on making. So I wanted to con- start the conversation with uh, just questions about your friends, family, compatriots in Israel. But I also want to ask you personally, you've been a diplomat for a long time in various postings and of course experiencing various crises around the region over this time. But I imagine that you wouldn't have had a crisis to deal with as severe as the current one. So how have the last four or five weeks been for you personally, for your family here, for your staff at the embassy? Well, We did not convenient to talk about me personally, but personally I've hardly slept. That's, I think, clear. Both the worry and what is happening, the personal responsibility and professional responsibility for the well-being of my employees at the embassy. 
uh, we are one very small team. Mm-hmm. Simple example, as I've mentioned, I've had to release two employees to fly over to Israel uh, during this crisis, uh, uh, leaving us to fill the places. But, you know, if someone's uh, friend or family is being hurt, they need to attend to them first. And there are uh, increased measures of security and alertness around the embassy, around uh, myself and the employees. You've always had a high degree of security, I can attest to, as your neighbor in the building. I personally feel extremely safe in our building because I know that your people are looking after it. But I imagine for you, this would have actually been quite a limitation in your movements in the last few weeks. I can confirm. Hmm. What's the situation like for the Jewish community then in New Zealand? Would they also have similar security concerns? The situation in the Middle East and the way it is presented, especially in New Zealand, has caused a lot of distress to uh, the Jewish tiny community of New Zealand. Threats are not directed only at Israelis, also at Jews. It doesn't really matter what the Jews individually or as a community are thinking, if they're supporting or not supporting, taking sides or not, any side. Being a Jew became an issue. And this is what is worrying. It's not about Israel only no. anymore. And I think this crisis has revealed, not only in New Zealand, but being in New Zealand, I see it here, the undercurrents, if you'd like, the dirty undercurrents, the threats, the idea that one can step into a synagogue or a home of a Jew has caused a lot of anxiety. I feel it because people write to me, people talk to me, people feel that they cannot attend the synagogues, prayers. At times, at least the first two weeks, synagogues and Jewish schools were closed. There was a feeling of uh, being left out. And Are they this slowly being reopened? They've been reopened with proper security in place. I absolutely understand this anxiety. In my previous position, uh, prior to coming to New Zealand, I was the Israeli uh, head of the uh, delegation of Israel to the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and I was the director of combating anti-Semitism and for a Holocaust remembrance of the Israeli foreign ministry. We have been following it, but now you don't really need to follow it in a way to see it because the jump around Europe, the US even, and in New Zealand is a jump of hundreds of percent. It is a relatively small Jewish community in New Zealand. How many thousands of people are we talking about? Jewish community in the entirety of New Zealand is between 10 and 12,000 people. And from your conversations, do you believe that the Jews in New Zealand currently feel sufficiently protected by the police? To be honest, they don't. Uh, they don't feel it because of the threat level, because of direct threats. You can see it in the number of approaches by individuals and communities to the police, to the authorities. They also don't feel protected because loose politicians are taking aim at what they think is a international accepted political opinion, whilst it is commonly used by anti-Semitic organizations and individuals, such as the saying of, you know, to, from river to sea, Palestine will be three. Yeah. This is a, an acceptable worldwide call that is associated with not only anti-Israelis, but anti-Semites. It means that there is no place for Jews or a Jewish state between the river Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. 
It means the annihilation of Israel, of its Jews. And since almost every Jew around the world has family member or friends in Israel, it worries them mm. tremendously. We had sackings of politicians in Britain and I think of an advisor to the Metropolitan Police for chanting from the river to the sea. In New Zealand, of course, we've had the opposite. We had politicians actually chanting this and not even apologizing for it, let alone being sacked. We had a United Nations resolution calling for a ceasefire. Most Western countries actually voted against it or at least abstained. The New Zealand government in caretaker mode supported the resolution. I have written about it. I've been recorded saying it and I still stand by what I have said. Uh, New Zealand needs to recalculate its path. I understand the nimbleness. I think this is time for a show of character. Does New Zealand and the new government, because in a few days we will have a new government, understand what is at stake? Is there an understanding that Israel is simply a stronghold, blocking, therefore firstly suffering Islamist terrorism? And in this case, uh, Hamas is ISIS. You know what? In, in light of what we have seen, even worse than ISIS. Or does New Zealand keep standing on the balcony, criticizing from afar, trying to please all, for instance, even Hamas, by not designating the entirety of Hamas as a terror organization, like the European Union, the US, the Canada, even Australia, and many, many others have done already? Or does New Zealand join the like-minded, Western-style, liberal democracies, siding by Israel in fighting terrorism? And it is terrorism. And what is particularly disappointing and disturbing from my perspective is actually how quickly the debate has moved on beyond the massacre. When I compare this to other massacres, other terrorist acts, other acts of war in the past, you mentioned 9-11. We could also talk about Russia's invasion in Ukraine. Typically, this would have actually taken us weeks of condemnation, of talking about it, of acknowledging what happened and of really defining our side. In the case of the 7 October attacks, they were reported. We heard some horrific stories, but then we quickly moved on as if that was some distant event in the past. And then it only became about the response to the massacre without actually really understanding, really absorbing the magnitude of what happened. I think even Israel still battles to grasp what has happened. We relied on our security forces, on our intelligence, and they have disappointed us, let's be honest. Yes, because nobody really foresaw this. And this is why I compare it again to 9-11, because this is exactly the shock that the American establishment went through. On the other hand, it has proven to us, and hopefully to the world, and New Zealand sitting at the edge of it still is part of it, that you cannot really negotiate with terrorists. When Khaled Mashal, the leader of Hamas, sitting in luxury in Qatar, is interviewed about the day after, is not hiding the intent that is, by the way, written in the charter of Hamas, from where the river to see Palestine will be three is taken. It's, it's a quotation of the Hamas charter. They will regroup, he says, and do the October 7th again and again times. and again. He said and that. the question is... What do we say to that? What do we do to that? If you understand that on the other side, there is no rational player. It's a new era with new challenges. Challenges that New Zealand have never experienced, as uh, some Kiwi friends and people I meet in the corridors of power here try to explain to me that, yeah, look at New Zealand, we've never experienced war, learn from us. What I unfortunately have to say, the fact that you were never punched in the face doesn't make you a boxing champion. 
Israel was punched more than once in the face. The Jewish people have been punched in the face, literally and not literally, for millennia. What we have learned is that in some cases, you need to step ahead and obliterate the threat. From time to time, you need to do that, and you need to listen to your opponent. And if the opponent says, whatever will happen, I will destroy you. I will leave no place where there are Jews, and I will leave no place for your state, Israel, No matter what, no matter what will be discussed, what borders will be, we need to take them seriously. And if I lament something, is that we did not take Hamas seriously enough until now. And we did not take the time to really understand properly what happened. You came into our podcast studio today and you brought along a printout of a presentation from the Israeli Defense Force. On the first page, it contains a warning for graphic content, and I have seen... Some of the pictures from that presentation and the pictures really show in very graphic detail what actually happened on the 7th of October. I'm not sure whether we need to go into the details, but can I just summarize it as the most bestialic crimes that one can imagine in graphic detail documented by your defense force? What I need just to comment on that, most of what's out there was documented and uploaded proudly yes. by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. not by the IDF. What IDF managed to take is the aftermath. The burnt bodies, beheaded, and worse. So What you see on the web yes. is not made by Israel. It is basically the pride of terrorists in what they are doing. And this is what the westernized world, the liberal world, democracies need to worry about. It is an act of barbarism. It is a breach of civilization. It's the worst imaginable crimes that, that we could really think of. And yet it took us maybe 48 hours, 72 hours to just move on to the normal agenda and discuss the politics of it all. When in fact, I think it would have warranted, it would have really required a deeper discussion as actually how such barbarism can happen and what the proper response to that should be. Well, I can tell you only one thing. New Zealand was the last in the like-minded like-minded, I call liberal democracies, world to react officially. And the first reaction, as everybody witnessed, was a call for both sides to adhere to international law. We were not in a position or in the mood to laugh. So we did not. We took it very seriously. Is there in Hamas even one ounce of adhering to international law? I wonder. It is not visible in the pictures. I think that with all the horror that war is, and war is horror, the use of human shields, not only their own citizens, 241 kidnapped human shields from various nationalities, various ages, hiding in underground tunnels that were built, by the way, also with your money, Kiwi money, European money, instead of helping the infrastructure in Gaza to develop, is a double war crime. Protecting yourself behind civilians, shooting only into civilians. Yes, Israel is conducting a war, but it's an urban war, and the targets are carefully chosen according to the rules of war, which allow, by the way, targeting civilian installations if they are used for military purposes. Civilians are not the targets, but hiding behind civilians in their own places, in UN facilities, in hospitals, turns them by international law into legitimate targets. And believe me, had we wanted to ignore international law, 
it would have been much easier. The fact that we need to send troops in so they can pursue terrorists with a heavy price. Uh, we are counting daily our dead, also soldiers, and we are nearing the number 30 of soldiers, and every soldier is important in our case. We are understanding that we have no choice. And we will try our utmost to mitigate damage to civilian population. And this is why we have declared with millions of messages, leaflets, texts, etc. We have announced the South is safer. And we are trying on a daily basis to open corridors for Palestinian population that is not involved in the war to move to the South. It is Hamas that is blocking them with trucks on the road, with bombs. And unfortunately, I've seen some cases that they are proudly uh, producing and uploading to the web to scare their own civilians that they are shooting them. And actually, of all the armies in the world, the Israeli Defense Force is probably the one army that tries its most to protect civilians. I mean, you mentioned the leaflets dropped over Gaza telling people where to go. You have a safe corridor now for people to flee to the south towards the Egyptian border. So you are trying what you can to limit the civilian casualties. Yes, but, but still it is war. But It is war. I, but the other side doesn't fight it like a war because they don't adhere to the, lo the rules of no, war. No, because they see uh, uh, their own civilians also as legitimate weapons and they, in a way, throw them into the war. Unfortunately, there is no way to cease fire because ceasefire will allow them to regroup. We might consider temporary cessations or pauses in order for the Hamas to release. It is hardly mentioned, but Hamas needs to allow visitations by the Red Cross, at least, of the kidnapped people. We will be able to allow the visitations. We would love to see the kidnapped people. They can't use civilians as bargaining chips. I definitely, I don't know what they do with five-year-olds or three-year-olds that they've kidnapped from the mother's arms after shooting the mother. And, well, we do our best under dire conditions to adhere to the advice of military legal advisors who sit with the Geneva Convention and other humanitarian international law books on their desks and veto sometimes uh, military operations. Hamas and Islamic Jihad have different kind of counselors. They have Iranian Revolutionary Guards, counselors, guiding them and protecting them by providing the immense power of Iran in the region. And you can see it, it leaks also to uh, Lebanon via Hezbollah. It leaks also to the Houthis in Yemen. Whenever the Hamas feels too pressured, Iran, the big puppeteer in the Middle East, operates other proxies. I would like to talk about the role of the media in all of this. And in particular, I have three examples in mind, and I hope that you would be able to comment on them. One was the famous supposed attack on a, a hospital in Gaza, where the world media quickly ran with the official Hamas line that this was an Israeli airstrike, killing 500 people. We later found out it was actually a misguided missile of their own, and it probably only killed maybe a dozen or two dozen people, but not 500. Yes. I mean, every single person is a tragedy, but it, the numbers weren't correct. Similarly, We heard numbers about civilian casualties in Gaza of 8,000. Again, this seems to be one of those numbers invented by Hamas and never properly verified. And then just a couple of days ago, we saw on X, previously known as Twitter, the picture of a, an ambulance apparently shot by the Israelis. But actually, once you looked a bit more closely, you saw a horse under the ambulance. So it actually seemed to be a, a traffic accident where an ambulance ran over a horse. 
that didn't stop Twitter from sharing this as an, another attack from Israel. So all of these stories get, get out into the world without any decent kind of checking, but they, they're taken basically at face value. This is proof of what Israel does in Gaza. How do you see this kind of media reporting? Look, it takes us maybe too long to respond to those accusations and numbers. It is what a responsible party does. Fact-checking takes time sometimes, especially that you don't have people on the ground. By the way, there are also no independent journalists on the ground, those that were either escaped or are collaborating with Hamas if they wish to stay alive. Hamas is not exactly a media-loving organization. Uh, the numbers we are getting... Anybody's guess is equal to those numbers that are provided by Hamas. I've seen quotations not by Hamas, but by the Gaza Ministry of Health. Who is the Gaza Ministry of Health? It's the same organization that recently robbed the UNRWA uh, UN storages out of medical supplies, food and fuel with trucks marked as <laughs> Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health of Hamas runs the hospitals. The hospitals under which tunnels have been dug for years, and they link all the hospitals. The hospitals that are the provider of oxygen, electricity, of course, air conditioning, and other needed, much needed resources for the tunneled terrorists. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived a day in a tunnel, 500 kilometers of tunnels. So I heard Helen Clark saying, so she must be well informed, because it requires all this supply. This supply comes from the hospitals. How do they move? They move in ambulances as they know that Israel will adhere to international law and try not to hit hospitals. They know that Israel will not hit, unless necessary, ambulances. We have proof that we have provided to friendly nations and uh, intelligence agencies of the ambulances on the October 7th, bringing Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants, terrorists to the front lines. This is how they got there. There are using ambulances, often taking sick people with them in the ambulance just in case mm -hmm. it is bombed or checked, out of hospitals and into hospitals and to the command posts. The command posts are, again, unfortunately, in UN facilities, in kindergartens, and as was the case you have mentioned of the hospital in a parking lot of a hospital or in its cellars. What happened in this case that you have mentioned, it took a few hours to check. I think the media in New Zealand, but also elsewhere. The BBC were too quick to jump and judge, and very slow, if at all, quick or adhering to the idea of admitting a mistake or an apology. An Islamic Jihad, not Hamas, in this case, a rocket that fell, not on the hospital, by the way, the hospital is still operational, in the parking lot of the hospital where some rocket fuel was probably stored. The damage was minimal, mostly cars, because it was in parking lot, and by uh, sources that are not Hamas, from aerial photos, etc., 12 to 50 people killed, which is lamentable. What we do not know is how many of those reported, even if the numbers are not the numbers reported, there are people killed, how many of them are real civilians? They don't wear uniforms. They go in jeans and T-shirts. This is how they invaded most of them into the Israeli towns. Some of them wore, by the way, Israeli military uniform. So people cried for help to them, opened the doors, and were killed. I wouldn't suggest to trust the numbers, definitely when they come from Hamas, or provided to the media by the Ministry of Health of Hamas that again operates the infrastructure that supports 
the terrorists. Hamas is very successful in propagating these stories because it might take six, seven hours to correct. By that time, the story is out there. It's spreading in the media. What chance do you have to counter such media narratives? We have the same chance as other nations that are under attack, but still adhere to the media freedoms and to reliable fact-checking. Do you this believe is, that this is not an advantage. Yeah. This is no. a disadvantage yeah. in the short run. I think the advantage is in the long run because we are maintaining our reputation. Mm-hmm. I am not sure that in the social media era, this is a much appreciated quality because, you know, in the past, my late father used to say, uh, yesterday's paper is good only for wrapping the fish. Yes, I know that saying. Last minutes... Really, last minute, social media news is as good. And in this, unfortunately, in this fight, we will lose because of fact-checking, because of trying to adhere to our reputation of truthful reporting. By the way, we also report when rockets fall and more than 9,000 of them fell in our cities. And we say this and this city was hurt and we admit our wounds. We admit our dead. Um, What I don't see being admitted on the other side, and you've mentioned with the hospital incident, is that already more than 1,000 rockets launched by Hamas or Islamic Jihad hit inside Gaza. And yes, Gaza is one of the most populated areas in the world. If you throw a rocket, it will hit someone. So how many of those people unfortunately dead, by the way, forced to stay around by Hamas, have been killed by their own rockets? I do not know. Many. So do you believe that your positions get anything close to a fair hearing in our media, especially our media here in New Zealand? In one Word, no. In two words, not at all. Let's be ready. I can easily count the number of times I sent my op-eds, uh, my retorts to the local media, and it wasn't published. I know of some, because they've shared it with me, some probably didn't, who sent their letters or their own articles to the mainstream media, wherever it is, and were refused or not even contacted back. I think that... The easy sell of media here, and media is a business, and media wants you to read, and the media needs to be sometimes sensational, is not to side with Israel, because siding with Israel is going against the easy way, and the easy way is falling into the Hamas propaganda, is maybe siding with what we normally side with, the underdog. So Israel got it two, three days of being an underdog with this surprise attack, but then Israel came back to its senses and became, again, the regional, if you'd like, top dog. I would rather be a top dog alive than an underdog dead. And what is the response you receive from New Zealand politicians? I mean, we talked about one of them already, indirectly, Chloe Warbrick and her river to the sea. But what is the response you get from the government, from ministries, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade? What do you receive as a response from the leaders of our political parties? And what kind of response would you like to receive? I don't receive much understanding and support. Uh, on the other hand, directly, I don't also receive, on the other side, condemnation or disagreement. So are you uh, shunned, uh, basically? In a way, New Zealand is, is in a state of 
waiting. It came along elections with the uh, events in the Middle East. Uh, no one uh, had planned it. Not even Hamas could plan that. But it played into the hand of Hamas and its supporters. I've been reading and hearing the calls for my expulsion or the uh, embassies being closed by politicians was, and by others. Tepate Maori and the Greens. Again, I'm not a Kiwi, so I'm not involved in trying to keep away from the politics of New Zealand. I can tell you that there are few politicians who have contacted me, and I hope that the views that they have expressed in private will be expressed in the name of New Zealand once there is a government established in New Zealand. There are also those, without naming names, I visited the parliament recently, and uh, there was a new MP who felt the need to come to me and say what he thinks about my country. I shared with him openly what I think about his party, and uh, we agreed to disagree. Even sides who dislike each other needs to talk. Peace, as a scholar of conflict resolution, I've learned, is not done by friends usually, by, by ex-enemies or adversaries. To do so, as Israel did with Egypt, and with Jordan, and with the Emirates, and Morocco, and Bahrain, and was on the way of doing with Saudi Arabia, and maybe this is what provoked the October 7th, because we were at the verge of a breakthrough. You don't do with only friends. You do with ex-enemies and adversaries. Once there is an acceptance of the right of the other to exist, the negotiation table, and Israel has proved it, is there. By the way, not all peace accords are served warm and pleasant. There are some cold peace or periods of coldness also among members of the new Middle East, but we were definitely en route. We tried also with the Palestinians, the Oslo Accords and the interim agreements, and the Madrid discussions, all are in the history books. There are even Nobel Peace Prizes that were given to Israelis and Palestinians, Yasser Arafat, Itzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres. I think the negotiation table metaphorically is still there. The question is, does New Zealand, does the world want a Palestinian state within the two-state solution that is led by the likes of ISIS and Hamas? I wouldn't. We should probably also have a look at your conflict in the broader geopolitical context, because it is not just about Israel, Hamas and Gaza. It is basically now a playground for all sorts of powers. We saw the rally led by Turkish President Erdogan just a couple of weeks ago in front of a million people defending his friends from Hamas as freedom fighters. We saw that Vladimir Putin, of course, received a delegation from Iran and Hamas in Moscow. We can only speculate what China's engagement in this conflict is. But basically, it's enemy of my enemies, my friend logic, leading them to a certain side. So how do you see this from your perspective? You're the playground of this conflict, but it's not no longer really about what's happening in your own borders. It's actually what's happening with all sorts of other parties being interested in what's happening, and they take it as a proxy conflict. Look, it's not a secret. This crisis has proven again to the world, to Israelis, to Americans, the deep bond and like-mindedness between Israel and the United States of America. There was criticism in Israel about the Biden administration uh, by various parties, like there is about Israel uh, among some of the political streaks in America. But when it came to this, the Americans were very steadfast in their support by words, by deeds. They even shot some of the uh, Yemenite ballistic rockets that were launched at uh, Israel and at their own bases. And this 
naturally provoked not Israel's but the United States uh, natural enemies in the global competition on, on influence in the world this is how it has arrived to be so widespread this is how all of a sudden the Russians are there and the Chinese are there the Iranians of course are always steering around the, the Middle East we are trying as Israel to focus on what's most important what's most important is to a get rid of Hamas make sure that it cannot come back into power disrupt the region disrupt Israel disrupt their own civilians lives in parallel and not less important do everything that can be done globally and And locally to release the 241 hostages this number is, is is fluid because on a daily basis we haven't yet identified four weeks after all the bodies that were found again without being too graphic only yesterday I think it was four bodies that were discovered simply by falling vultures because some people managed to bleed their way into the bush while being attacked so only now they have been found but And then we can add or deduct to the list of abductees or missing persons. Still, once we will be able to get rid of Hamas, it will take time. So to the audience listening to us, be patient. Wars are not done. It's not a computer game. Mm-hmm. It's life. It will take time. The release of the hostages will take time. It will take time also because Hamas needs to be squeezed into releasing them or talking at least about visitations by humanitarian organizations to see who is there. Are they being taken care of? Then we have to also mend the huge wound into Israeli society, Israeli economy. This war is costing close to a billion dollars a day. And I think then will be the time... To also look globally and see who were our friends and as Martin Luther King jr had said after the war it's not my enemy that I will know it is those who were keeping silent mm. we began our conversation by talking about your friends and family in Israel for May I would like to conclude our conversation with a bit of a segment on where I come from because I watch with horror what's happening in Europe especially in Germany the so-called pro-palestinian rallies which are actually in fact anti-semitic rallies and sometimes actually calling for the erection of a caliphate in Germany so I come from Essen just last Friday there was a rally of 3,000 people in Essen waving the ISIS flags and Taliban flags calling for the erection of a German caliphate and it was a um, supposedly pro-palestinian rally in fact it was much going beyond that it was actually something completely different and we've seen similar pictures actually from Berlin we've also heard stories from Berlin about the Jewish community there also living in fear just as you described about the Jewish community here we've seen similar pictures from London we've seen them from Canada we've seen them from Sydney and I must say as a German born 30 years after the war growing up with not just the guilt but the responsibility to stand with Israel and prevent another Holocaust and prevent another rise of anti-semitism I find this incredibly hard to bear and you would have seen our deputy Chancellor of Germany with this video message last week which was perhaps one of the most impressive very speeches one very positive by the way a Greens politician the speech was everything that needed to be said in nine minutes and 40 seconds. And yet the reality on the streets of Europe is different. The reality is frightening. Actually, this morning, in one of my favorite German papers, I read a story about 
the experience of primary school teachers in Germany these days, where some of the classes have very high share of Muslim students, sometimes 70, sometimes even 90 percent. And the primary school teachers were reporting that young kids as young as eight arrive at school and they are effectively indoctrinated, saying they've been told by their families that Jews are born as, born as pigs and they have their noses operated straight after birth and all of these theories that you oh, would be familiar with. But that's mainstream now and the teachers say they are helpless, they can't combat this. So for a country, my country, where I'm originally from, that was founded on a Never Again, that was founded on a special responsibility for the Jewish population and Israel, to see that th this is now happening in the streets, it can't be countered properly anymore and actually there is no easy way out of this. I feel helpless. I really fear for the future of some European countries, but also some other Western countries, because I think this conflict that's happening in your country has now provoked something that's going well beyond that. It is the, the rebirth of radical Islam, of Islamic terrorism, and of course the rebirth of the kind of anti-Semitism that we hope never to see again. I feel hopeless and helpless. How must it feel to you then? I do not think, and I know you do not think, no one in his right mind thinks it was born out of the 7 October events. Maybe two thoughts uh, to end with. One, I think I've mentioned, Israel is in the forefront because it is in the Middle East. But you already feel the wave in Europe, in the US. New Zealand is far, but again, I'm not a prophet, and my crystal ball I left at the embassy, so I came to this discussion with you without my crystal ball, but you might feel it already and you might feel it stronger, this tsunami, even in New Zealand. If again, New Zealand will not recalculate its path politically, socially, educationally, and even the way you teach history. The Christians are not all perfect, the Jews are not all perfect, the Muslims are not all perfect. What I ask myself is when people escape, flee, ask refuge out of any country or any regime, what motivates them to turn the hosting countries, such as in Europe, into the places they have escaped from? I cannot fathom that. The second thought. People often find refuge in saying, I am not anti-Semitic, I am just anti-Zionist or anti-Israel. Therefore, it's legitimate. I would recommend people to read Nathan Sharansky's an ex ex-prisoner of the Soviet Union just because he was teaching Hebrew in Russia. He was later a minister in the Israeli government and after that he was the chairperson of the Jewish agency taking care of the Jewish plight of persecuted Jews around the world. And he named the three Ds to in a way distinguish between what is a political view and what is anti-Semitism in disguise when discussing Israel. The three Ds are double standard, when you expect Israel to behave differently than you would expect its opponent or the other side. Demonization. The IDF is Nazi. The Israelis are monsters that were born with pig noses, as you have mentioned. And delegitimation of Israel as a state. Israel has no right to exist. The Jews shouldn't have even one country. Or, as I have heard here in some discussions, why this place? You have absolutely no geographical connection whatsoever to it. To this I answer just, well, for 3,000 years we've been praying to go to Jerusalem. This place is mentioned basically almost in every uh, Jewish prayer. 
and I don't compare it to other religions, but there are some religions that do not pray to go back to Israel. They did not have a king like King David or King Solomon over Judea, an ancient name by which we are called Jews or Jerusalem, Yerushalem in Hebrew, whole uh, city. If you see those three Ds that Natar Sharansky has identified, you are probably seeing an anti-Semite. Don't be convinced otherwise and don't fall into the nice wrapping of this approach. It is important for people to understand what is behind. And if you are yourself falling into it and you don't acknowledge that you are ticking all the three Ds, recalculate. Maybe you are wrong. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your perspective. I think it's important to hear your perspective. I think we are not hearing that enough because you haven't got a space in our media enough as you should have. And I think it is one of those issues that needs coverage from all sides and not just from one radical side. And therefore, I'm grateful for your time. And I wish you, your people, your family, and everybody in the region, shalom. Thank you. Yourself, Oliver, and the New Zealand Initiative for initiating this opportunity. Let's try and set our next meeting for better times to discuss what is really important and is also uh, not uh, being discussed much, the huge potential of trade, the huge potential of collaboration between our two small but very advanced economies and societies. Let's do that. I think talking about economics is a lot more pleasurable. Absolutely. Thank you, Ren. Thank you. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.